I'm sorry for what happened. I'm sorry. I understand why Mr. Okuzaki is doing this. I'm ashamed of myself. I couldn't do anything for the victims or their families. I sincerely apologize. You were my squad leader. It's been 38 years, and now I come to you, and I'm able to say I'm a much better human being than you. I can say it to your face because of the way I lived my life after the war. It wasn't just my own doing, but also divine will and nature's law. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 139, Back to Cole's Choice. What are we talking about today? Well, Septerica is traditionally our celebration of documentary, since it's your birthday that month and documentary is one of your favorite things. But you zigged when I zagged this year. You left me here holding the documentary bag, so I picked a doozy. Enough of a documentary to cover both of us. And I chose The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On from 1987, and it's a documentary directed by Kazuo Hara, and it follows the efforts of Kenzo Okuzaki, a 62-year-old veteran of World War II who is trying to unravel the unexplained deaths of two soldiers in his old unit. I'm glad that I ended up going a bit lighter after this, (laughs) as opposed to, say, the sorrow and the pity. Yeah, there's enough darkness here to last the whole month. And you'll see that here because I would like to right away establish a little background of the historical circumstances. I think that's necessary before we get into the film, just to give you a good idea of the backdrop. And we can only really scratch the surface because we're talking history generations in the making here. But just to give you something to work off of, Japan's campaign in World War II in New Guinea, it lasted from 1942, early January 1942, until the Japanese surrender in 1945. Almost the entirety of World War II, and it was one of the most arduous campaigns that anyone endured during that time. And I think one of the most troubling elements of this particular story is how needless the deaths seem to be because the murders in question actually took place three weeks after the war was over. And when you talk about needless, when we look at the whole vast array of potential war crimes here, the one that stuck out to me the most was the concept of avoidable hunger. That's been haunting me. Yeah, it's tough to think about. And for a bit of perspective on that, it was not uncommon for Japanese troops in these Pacific campaigns to suffer greater losses from starvation and disease than combat. In New Guinea, for example, it is estimated that as many as 97% of the deaths were from causes other than combat. Essentially, they were effectively just blockaded in and they were unable to receive food and medicine And as a result, they resorted to some extreme measures to survive as they were subjected to conditions that are beyond the comprehension of most of us. It'll be helpful to keep all that in mind as this story unfolds. That's the backdrop against which all this plays out. Another bit that's really troubling, too, is to think that Okuzaki was one of only a handful of people 
left over from his 36th Engineering Corps out of a number of over a thousand troops. Well, the impact of World War II on the Japanese soldiers and citizenry was unimaginable, obviously. So the first thing I think when I'm trying to make my way through all this, why perpetrate these atrocities upon your own countrymen on top of everything else that you're going through? Now, are you talking about, with that question, the people in charge, placing troops in certain death and starvation conditions, and then ordering further atrocities to be committed upon them? Or do you mean the troops themselves who committed further atrocities on each other at the ground level and also against natives and other prisoners? I'm talking about all of it, but for me, the worst of it is when it comes from the top down. It's not just savagery and survival. It has become bureaucracy at that point. The whole, an order is an order and we had to obey kind right. of a thing. Well, there are a couple of things that I want to talk about here. Because I started to look at going earlier than World War II. And the mindset that the military had leading into the war. Because I don't fully understand the ramifications of Manchuria and the Sino-Japanese War. I just have the most basic concept of there being, in general, very low morale. And we also have to understand that there was definitely this prerogative to absolve the emperor, Hirohito, of any sort of responsibility. All about trying to save this idea of Japan as a peaceful nation. Yeah, I think this is where understanding the conditions that they were living through helped explain things a little. Not that it excuses any of it, but we hear details that are abominable. One that stuck out to me, Tanaka was shot with a poison arrow and went mad. But we almost have to appreciate that as poetic, even oddly romantic, because to take that at face value would just be too much. Speaking of romanticism... That leads me to my next idea, trying to understand this concept of the Bushido Code. This was indoctrinated, basically, into the Japanese soldier as part of his basic training. The idea was, the greatest honor is to die for the emperor, and it was cowardly to surrender to the enemy. And any sort of perceived failure on that count, or insufficient devotion, would get you punishment, typically the physical kind, and it would pass all the way down the lower ranks. It was the accepted way to deal with disobedience. I'm glad you brought that up because one other thing to keep in mind as we're having this discussion, as you're watching the film, when this was made in the present, at the time of filming, the prime minister was Nakasone Yasuhiro, who was also a World War II veteran. And Yasuhiro was the first post-war prime minister to raise the question of Hirohito's moral culpability for the war. So maybe for the first time, the political climate was shifting ever so slightly with regard to the emperor's infallibility. It was no longer as feasible, I think, as a society to deflect responsibility. Culturally, that door was opened just a crack, maybe, and now Okuzaki is going to kick it the rest of the way in. Because there were still people who felt that Japan never should have surrendered, number one. And... Number two, we're starting, I think, now to get a better sense of the estimated number of deaths that resulted from Japanese war crimes, and it is a huge spectrum, 3 to 14 million. Also something to consider, Japan had not ratified the Geneva Convention, so that 
incorporates elements of torture. So it's a problematic time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, so keeping all that in mind, as we move into the film proper, we begin at the opposite end of the spectrum of all that darkness. We have a wedding here in the beginning, a happy occasion that now in retrospect maybe feels like a bit of a head fake, where Okuzaki is the go-between here. And I go into this assuming that that is a position that would be occupied by a respected, venerated elder, probably. And then he begins to deliver his speech. It is a very political speech to be giving at an occasion like this, it seems like. Is everyone here a radical, or are we just getting the first glimpse of his intensity and his single-mindedness? Did he bully his way into this position? How do we find ourselves here? I'm trying to place myself in the seat of any of the people who are (laughs) around. Do they know him already? A lot of collar tugging. It really feels uncomfortable to me. I wonder how much they care about what he's saying. I wonder how much they know about the groom because Okuzaki calls him out for being a radical as well. Or do they all know him and maybe this is the 100th time that they've heard this story? Because in this position, he's supposed to be upholding the institution of family. And so unless they're all diehard radicals, like you mentioned, It seems like he's mainly just speaking for himself and to himself. Well, I don't think there can be anyone assembled that isn't aware of who he is and what he's done, because they also go through his rap sheet here at the beginning, and it is impressive. He has attempted to assault the emperor with a sling, and I think, is that a little on the nose for a David and Goliath metaphor here? Okazaki isn't exactly a subtle guy, I guess. Or Shakespeare. Slings and arrows. (laughs) And when I say he's not subtle, as we move on to his other crimes, you'll see that's true. Distributing pornographic flyers containing the emperor's image, conspiracy to commit murder, actually committing murder. He is clearly driven by an all-consuming passion for something, perhaps justice. What that is, that thing that he's after, is one of the lingering questions of the film for me. So this was entirely brand new to me. Thank you for bringing it to me. How did you come to it? I came to this several years ago, like we often do, by scouring lists. And I have to say, I have a real love-hate relationship with lists. So many of them feel lazy, no thought, no curation. I was going to say, I think you have a love-hate relationship with the person creating the list. (laughs) But then, sometimes really good ones come along and they lead me to a real find like this. If I recall correctly, I found this via a list of documentarians' favorite documentaries. And Errol Morris, he's a big booster of this one. Does this remind you of anyone's style as you're watching it? It seems like in a particular era, we might be able to put Michael Moore in the Okuzaki role. Otherwise, it's confrontational but removed in a certain way. And this whole idea of when or when not to intervene is... A difficult one. In watching Hara's technique, he keeps that camera steady but pulled back often to get the full view of whatever is happening, especially during violent interludes, which we will be discussing. I have a really hard time picturing Michael Moore rolling around on the floor with one of his interview subjects trading blows, but... I thought he literally got in a fist fight with somebody at some point. Could be. Who knows? I don't picture him throwing the first punch, I guess is what I should say. Somebody out to punch him? Yeah, there are a ton of those. (laughs) For me, it had a bit of a less blank feel at the beginning, but that was only to start with, as we are establishing his eccentricities, let's say. 
An obvious touchstone would also be Werner Herzog and his embrace of rogues and madmen. And then I can see something like Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing as a bit of a spiritual descendant of this. The thing I like to think about when I am mulling that stuff over is what other documentarians think when they watch it, because I certainly think that some of them wish they could go to these lengths, but are kept in check by a more rigid code of ethics. And also, I would guess the love-hate relationship with your subject. Because this was a five-year process, and I'm not sure I would have been able to hang in. And Hara's involvement definitely changed the course of this film over that long stretch of time. It was originally supposed to be more of an overview of the war generation, but then Hara found documented proof of these crimes. So we have a kind of capturing the Friedman-style seismic shift in focus midstream there. And we get two scenes early on that I think really lock in for us Okazaki's personality. In addition to the wedding, he then goes to visit an old compatriot in the hospital, Yamada, to discuss prior events and his plan to visit Indonesia to have a memorial service. Combined with that wedding speech, his bedside manner, I think it sets the tone for all of the meetings to follow. It makes clear that he is relentless and gives no quarter, nor makes any allowances for any extenuating circumstances that you might be in during these conversations. Because it starts out in this way of him observing the manners and the rituals, you think. And I initially wrote down, he seemed to be visiting a friend. I thought that this was kind of a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, we realize (laughs) there aren't those. You are right. But I do like that we are on these shifting sands. We don't quite know where everyone rests on that spectrum of who he knows. And if I were the man in the hospital's wife watching this, I think I would be crushed because at one point Okuzaki tells him, you deserve hospitalization. You deserve no peace in your life because of your actions. This man is in bed. He looks like he may have had a stroke. I mean, it looks very serious. He looks at death's door. But at the same time, we don't know who we're looking at. War criminal? Innocent bystander? Who knows? I think in Okuzaki's world, there is no such thing as an innocent bystander. As I was wondering, can that person be, for example, a war criminal and still be his friend somehow? I don't know. I didn't know at that point. We soon realize, though, this is the only thing he thinks about. There isn't a moment when he is not broadcasting his message. His car certainly draws attention. He paints these political messages all over his home and his car. He is covering every inch of every exposed surface with his propaganda. And when you say broadcast, he is literally broadcasting bullhorn system. Everywhere he travels, he speaks about what has happened, calling out Hirohito all the time. I don't know if it was the same for you, but I related to these signs a great deal. You see this type of thing all over Oklahoma and Texas. I saw it a ton growing up in rural areas. And when I saw it, it was usually multiple signs along the property line, and it was typically one of two things religious nuttery proclaiming the end times were coming, or more like this, someone nursing a very specific grudge or protesting a specific event, often to do with a conflict with the government over their land or taxes or the like. One specific example that I will always carry with me was in Perry, Oklahoma. It was a small town just outside of Stillwater where I went to college at Oklahoma State, and there was a guy named David Nemechek who had dozens of these, maybe hundreds over the years. We would routinely drive out there to see what he'd added recently, and there were all these hand-painted signs, and this went on for 40 years, 
with the background and text colors alternating every couple of words in this crazy quilt pattern. And they were a litany of complaints about Noble County, which is where Perry was. And it included things like accusations of ethnic cleansing and killing his cattle. And almost every one of them ended the same way with a big Y. W-H-Y, not the letter Y, but Y, Y, Y. And I have to admit, one thing that I didn't think while I was reading those signs is here's someone who has a legitimate complaint and is going about resolving it properly. So your assumption is this guy's maybe a loon. Maybe, yeah. And I wonder now, though, after having seen this, what I would think of it if I had just encountered it today. If he had a point, but just lost it somewhere along the line because he felt he wasn't being listened to or that he had no other recourse. Did you ever run into anything like this when you were a kid where you grew up? Not that I can remember. The things that I recall are those folks who make their house into a sort of shrine. There seems to be one in every smaller community, specifically religious purposes. I know that there was one that was dedicated to the Virgin Mary, basically. So every surface was covered in something like that. What I think about now, which seems to be a little bit more of a modern invention are using billboards to call for justice Mm -hmm. or to call out a specific person in law enforcement, for example, or to use in missing person cases. You make me think I should just get a billboard for fun. It can't be that expensive, right? It's thousands of dollars. Yeah, still, it'd be a good time. Okay. When we have a few thousand dollars, that sounds fine. What I did come into contact with is what I feel like is a bit of an offshoot of this sort of person. When I worked in the state law library, there were people who were very definitely nursing grudges against the government. Mm -hmm. So this was open to the public. The only place that they could go to try to get some sort of recourse for representing themselves, which they always did in court. My sister worked at the county clerk's office here as well. And it was a parade of, I need to make copies of this because I am suing everyone. Absolutely. And I will say that nine times out of 10, My assumption was this person is a loon. I do remember one guy, though, who was very definitely a loon. And I could see that germ based on his war experience when at some point he was not crazy, that something really did happen, but it has evolved over time into something that no one can reasonably answer or deal with. But he's just going to keep going. Well, specifically, these signs are very affecting to me because of that, both in terms of how overwhelming they are and then also just their general aesthetic. On one of his vehicles, we see the image of the Japanese flag with the colors reversed, for instance. So you've got this bright white sun on this blood red field, and it makes me very aware of the power of a symbol, especially when it's repurposed like that to maximum effect. It gets your attention. I also found myself wondering at this point if this was ever in danger of being censored or shut down, not because of anything transgressive that the film crew was doing necessarily, but more because Okuzaki had a long history of being dangerous, even homicidal. And incarcerated multiple times for many years. And it seems like he's definitely an embarrassment to officials. He is a very public dissident with a capital D. He unceasingly speaks truth to power. He seems completely fearless, but the way he manifests that, is it admirable, do you think? Well, the part that seems less admirable to me is his divine calling, which that's what he calls it. Those are his terms. To me, that makes him an instrument that 
in its own way absolves him of consequences for his violence, even though he says that's not the case. And his truth then comes with him being God, judge, executioner as well. But if we go back to these multiple interactions with police, on the surface, they're very calm in a way that surprised me. It seems like, especially at that moment where he is in traffic, they don't seem to have much power to do anything other than knock on his car window, create sort of a semi-blockade. Do you think that's because of the presence of a camera crew, though? If that wasn't there, would it be a different story? Possibly it could be observing the rituals again, but over and over, the police come in as the calm ones. Because he'll then berate and challenge them, but they don't then turn to violence against him, which is something that I'm less familiar with in this country at this point in time. And that embarrassment also seems to come with some indifference, for example. He takes over this speech at the Bar Association, and again... It seems like most people don't particularly care or remember or were directly impacted by what he's talking about. Yeah, every waking second with this guy is devoted to fomenting or engaging in confrontation. It has to be exhausting, I would think. But in his case, he seems like the type that it may be the only thing keeping him alive, literally, at this point. And this ongoing fight with the emperor and his legacy, I think, there's a really interesting irony here about Okuzaki's relationship to the emperor. It's just completely something else. Okuzaki has come to eventually occupy a similar space in his own demented universe, I think, that Hirohito did in his. And then also, along with everything else, traditionally, we're usually pulling for the dogged detective as he roots out corruption and exposes misdeeds that actually qualify as war crimes, but... Once Okuzaki begins to visit these former soldiers and interrogate them and more, we have to ask multiple times, is this the way? In a nutshell, it's that fine line of, he has a point, and that point has driven him insane. The admirable part for me, I guess, what it comes back to there, is that he never wavers in terms of the courage of his convictions. For example, he has completely refused himself the comfort of pushing these memories down into the recesses of his own psyche the way everyone else seems to have. That's maybe the most relatable thing about him to me. How do you let something that grave just go? What is our responsibility as viewers or bystanders, much less participants in something like this? Well, I think that question comes into really poignant relief when we see him visiting a dead soldier's mother in Hiroshima. That soldier died of starvation, we see the grave that she made for him, and then she sings this amazing mother's song of lament. It's incredibly affecting. And so this is a person directly affected by what he has been talking about. So she's the one that needs some sort of answer. Well, I'm glad you said that word, because that is what we're after. We begin to seek the answer to all these questions in earnest when Okazaki sits down for these meetings with these former soldiers. Sergeant Takami, he's one of the first that Okazaki visits, he says that their commander shot his men. But Takami says he wasn't an eyewitness. No one wants to go on record as Okazaki's eyewitness for the atrocities that he keeps bringing up. And we continually hear what you referred to, this old saw that it was an order, but we know very well that some things, calling it your job doesn't make it right. 
In Okuzaki, he obviously doesn't fear the consequences of lashing out at what would be deemed his superiors. He operates completely outside of any hierarchy, aside from the one he perceives as gods, in which I imagine he sees himself as a sort of avenger, exempt from the usual social restrictions, and all he has to worry about is staying healthy so he can just do more of this. Well, I don't know about you, but I started to feel like I was watching congressional hearings almost. These interviews, if you can call them that, these interrogations, they start out the same way. Even while someone is crying, they are lying. And it's the don't dig up the past. I didn't see it. I heard about it. Well, I wasn't there. Okay, I was there. And then on and on and on. And it's the same thing as he is continually upping the ante. He visits a soldier named Yukio Seo next. Some of these men, they're nearing 70. But that does not stop Okuzaki, in this case, from literally physically attacking this man. And all of these, he just shows up at their house or place of work. He wasn't invited. He didn't call ahead. It's a shock when this happens, but should it be, I guess, in retrospect? Because it's been made clear who he is and what he's capable of and that he won't be put off. I shot at the Emperor. What do you think I'm going to do to you? You're no one. At first, Seo, he seems guilty only of the crime of just wanting to forget about it, which is infuriating enough to Okuzaki. But I wonder, did you have any gut reaction initially to Seo's denials? How did you size him up? I didn't believe any of these guys. Again, because you can't say one thing and then cry while you're saying it. And because that refrain is the same for all of them. Well, I have to admit, the first time I saw this, Seo's denials were convincing to me because of the specific way he frames them. He doesn't talk about the war crimes. His diversion was effective to me because of this approach of, I don't even remember you. I believed in that moment that he doesn't know him, but then obviously there's more to the evasion. Because that could be true 40 years later. You wouldn't fault him for not remembering things or people. Right. But it turns out he's an executioner. Yeah, because then you finally understand how could you ever forget something like this unless you're a literal psychopath. Yeah, I wouldn't be much of an investigator, I guess. Or maybe that it's just I don't have the same motivation for tenacity that Okazaki has. Well, speaking of, it finally made me get for the first time this thing that we see on procedurals or true crime shows. I could never understand before why the police seem to ask the same questions over and over, maybe slightly adjusted, or literally the same questions. But then I think about the show Homicide, and that whole idea of once you get someone in the box, you close down all their options. So what comes from the same question over and over again suddenly gets the answer, it was in order. I'm glad you mentioned the significance of also that repeated deflection, we shouldn't dig up the past. Okuzaki is not dissuaded whatsoever by this simple-minded, and I think often self-serving and disingenuous plea. Again, with the admirable facets of this, at the very least, Okuzaki, he lives by his tenet of accepting responsibility for one's actions. Or at least he does now, because on multiple occasions, he also offers to call the police to the scene himself. He is willing to accept whatever comes with that. Now, do you feel like that's a bit of a bluff element, too? Is he playing on some cultural predisposition to avoid this kind of public display or uproar? I think he's less canny than dogged, I would say. 
I also think back to that moment where he almost casually says that he is going to Kobe prison to measure the cell because he's going to recreate it in his house. At this point, he's already been to jail several times and spent a long time there. And so that only consequence seems to be, I'll go to jail for it. Who cares? Yeah, he harbors no illusions about how this will eventually resolve itself. So I don't think that there's this big love of life that he's fostering or doing anything for anybody other than the people in the past, essentially. He's got no other responsibility to anyone currently living. I do think this is a specific technique, though, the way he violates these cultural norms of non-confrontation, then seemingly backing off and observing custom or deference at just the right moment to get something out of his subject. He keeps them completely off balance. I also did wonder, because again, I, I don't get the sense that he's that canny. It seems like it's an ingrained ritual to start with. This whole idea of maybe you can take the guy out of the village, but not the village out of the guy. It's always there, at least in part, until he just wipes it away. Well, another of the things I was thinking about as we're going along here, what are the legal repercussions for these crimes now? And then Okuzaki himself actually says, these perpetrators, they can't face penal responsibility nor civic liability. I get the distinct feeling, though, that even if they were technically able to be prosecuted, that they never would be. No one cares enough, and no one would go to all the trouble that it would take to convene a tribunal, have a trial, etc., at the insistence of this madman. Because I wasn't sure if that was a gambit of his, that he just pulled that out in order to lull the person into a sense of complacency. Uh, that's a good point. I didn't actually check into the statutes, but Okuzaki himself does say, it's only God that can persecute you now. I do believe, well, not that part, but I do believe, like you're saying, that nobody seems to care enough. For example, when you think about in China, young people can't identify that famous Tiananmen Square photo that is burned in my brain, probably yours too, mm -hmm. from when we grew up. So there's definitely a remove. Yeah, I was wondering too while we are watching this, is there a specific generational indifference? Because I think some of what motivates him is that if he doesn't do this right now, then it will be lost forever. So maybe the motivation is that this will be forgotten because it has been in other places. And then essentially, I think it means that all of us have to tell the truth all the time and then document it. And what is the likelihood of that? Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of us, and I'm speaking for myself, sometimes I don't want to know too much about terrible things or I would just be screaming all the time. I do though want to come back to this legal ramifications question for a second, because I do sometimes realize that this is all not lost. For example, if you think about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, that was in 1995. And just in the last couple of decades, there have been similar truth commissions in the Congo, Sierra Leone, Chile, Germany, Canada, Australia. For example, we just watched sort of a new iteration of this in the film version from just last year of La Llorona in Guatemala. And those legal waters were murky back during and just immediately following the war. In 1946, a Lieutenant General Tachibana was convicted of cannibalism, something that was not described in the Geneva Convention and not really in the Hague Conventions either. So he was convicted and hanged for prevention of honorable burial and murder. 
something you said in the middle of that there struck a chord with me about how if you just face this stuff head on 24-7, your head would come off. I think about these soldiers and how emotionally and mentally maybe you've finally been able to push all of this out of your mind and now Okazaki shows up on your doorstep 40 years later. In most cases, even with the most benign examples, people don't want to revisit those war memories. You've told me, I think, that your father hasn't spoken about his Vietnam experience much, right? That's true. Sometimes about people that he knew, but not about actual experiences. And is it true that because of the timing of his deployment and everything, he wasn't actually even in combat? Is that right? I don't know that that's correct, because he was in Vietnam. I don't know what he saw. I truly don't. But he's, he's never, never said anything. He's never said, okay. and I haven't asked. I can tell you, I don't want Okuzaki showing up at my dad's house. Right. Just to be clear, not because I suspect my father of being <laughs> okay. a war Good. criminal, but I don't want him to go through anything like that. I wouldn't either, because it's harrowing. When he visits Hara, another one of the soldiers, not the director in this case, Hara's guilt and grief completely overtake him. He is weeping and genuflecting, and he asks, I think, a more interesting and specific variation of that earlier question, why do you want to disturb the dead? Again, a massive deflection, because it's abundantly clear he's disturbing the living. Because Hara has already started off by saying to the sister and brother of two of these troops who were killed, allegedly, that they did nothing wrong. He's trying to alleviate what he thinks their pain might be. And there's this question of, does the truth deserve to come out, according to him? I can't even fathom what this must be like to carry around. These are such complex issues that arose from the most extreme circumstances you could live through. And I think it's really telling that it finally comes down to, it wasn't my bullet that killed them. That's the only out that he can give himself or the only solace he can find whether or not that that's true it's the difference i think between reasonable behavior and understandable behavior given the circumstances it's a lot to parse through and it's the flip side of the difference between agreeing with okazaki's motivating principles but not his methods so what do you think okazaki's ultimate goal is here what does he do once he gets at the truth how much of this process is eventually about Redemption on one side versus justice on the other. I think you nailed it earlier, this idea that he would just collapse under the burden of carrying the truth. So he has to get it out. And he hopes that it's going to be universally accepted and told and not forgotten. Universal truth is a tricky concept here, we learn, because during this interview with the squad's medic, they find out that the war was over when these particular crimes occurred. And we also learned what motivated Yoshizawa's desertion. And who could blame these two soldiers for being driven to escape? Establishing rules and thinking that they will be rigidly observed in the middle of war, conditions like this, it's insane to me. He puts it so simply, they wanted food and they deserted. This visit with a medic to me felt like the biggest turning point because those words just start to flow once he sits down. And it puts paid to that whole lie of I don't remember that everybody starts with. It's on the tips of all of their tongues. And he tells us they were ordered to fight till they died. But this crazy idea that the war was already over, but the men still had to carry out the order to shoot the two soldiers anyway and then eat them. It's insane. 
But he does stop short of saying that it was all a plot to cover up cannibalism, basically. But that's the sense that we get. And then the doctor comes along and adds a little bit more of a conflicting spin to the story. It's pieces of a puzzle reminiscent of Rashomon here. They all say different things. First, it's desertion. Now, cannibalism. Did they run and they were caught? Did they commit one of the most taboo acts that humans can take part in? The sister actually believes that the two soldiers were sacrificed so that superior officers could survive on their flesh. Absolutely, and that's backed up with other stories. Yeah, there is literally no shortage of documentation of Japanese soldiers in the Pacific theater turning to cannibalism, often systematically and at the direction of officers. And there's even taboo within that. They weren't supposed to eat other Japanese, but they did. And there were these natives that they called black pigs. Unfortunately, it was supposed to be targeted against them. But they also turned to other allied soldiers and ate them. And I think it's telling then after that we learned that the sister and brother never went out with him again on these interrogations and were left to decide why. Did they feel that they learned the truth in that moment? Was it too exhausting? Did they just not want to go about it his way? I think it's two things. One, I couldn't blame them if they just didn't want to hear anymore. And two, I think they got enough of the story that they felt that their siblings were exonerated somehow. But stopping short of making the truth known to all, is there something to be said for that? Who's left? It only matters to them. It only matters to the family, I think. Which is a crucial point of what happens next, because then Okuzaki, he actually recruits imposters of family members for this inevitable showdown with the squad leader, Koshimizu. Then I have to go back on my whole, he's not canny. This is a canny move. When I first saw this, I thought for all the world that what we were actually going to see was him kill Koshimizu on screen. And it turns out that I was right to have that feeling in my gut because that was his plan. And I pictured in my mind's eye happening at that very juncture during this meeting when Koshimizu confirms that cannibalism was the charge, not desertion, but they're splitting hairs even then, as if there are degrees to these things. I can see in Okuzaki's mind, I've had enough of this. I thought it might happen when he says, you ordered us to sing before mm. we could eat. As if it was possible for them to be dehumanized anymore. He is just grinding that boot heel in. I keep coming back to this idea, and you started to introduce it a little bit. You made me think of it. Why is Okuzaki not just turned away? Why does no one just say, no, you can't come in here. I'm closing the door. Leave. I still think, again, it comes back to ritual and manners. Or maybe no one could believe for a moment that a person would just show up and start demanding answers to these things. For it to be there, though, to me, it's saying something larger about the culture. Well, what do you think he ultimately achieved? Because consoling the souls of the victims, getting the emperor to accept responsibility, the public has to know the truth to prevent war. These are his stated aims. How close did he get? I think on the one hand, the film attracts the people that it's supposed to. Those people who want to know what happened. Maybe he inspires one person every time it's shown to keep putting the truth forward. I do think little by little with this film and everyone else's actions, we do as a society learn more of the truth. But I don't think war will ever be prevented. Right. Obviously not. One of the most fascinating things to me about this is lexicon. This is a sterling example 
of the need to define our terms, come to an agreement as to what those things mean and the subjectivity of all of that. We understand these words he's using, honor, truth, responsibility, where it gets tricky. And the reason I keep coming back to it, and I think it holds up to multiple viewings, is navigating this gap between his definition of those things and ours. And then he starts making his way back through the interviews that he's done already. He returns to Sayo now that he knows he was an executioner. And you brought this up. It might be legitimately hard to remember details now. Or would it? I think like you say, if I ever had to be a member of a hastily assembled firing squad, I don't think I would ever forget that. But on the other hand, the entire experience that they went through in New Guinea was horrifying nonstop. This instance might just be one of dozens or hundreds of grim moments that you endured while you were weak or sick or starving, so it might just be one big nightmarish blur. Then he makes his way back to Takami, who is the first one I think that truly acknowledges his role in all of this and apologizes. That's the opening scene that we did. Again, this sequence, it illuminates more about Okuzaki than anything else. He is not interested in justice, seemingly, at this point. His primary motivation for this return trip is the revenge of asserting his moral superiority. Nothing healing is achieved by any of this. Well, and speaking of not healed, he comes back to Yamada out of the hospital in his home, and he finally tells the truth. I'm so affected by this because he's speaking not to Okuzaki specifically, but to who he believes to be one of the family members. And he says he's written a book about this, though... He does dissemble a bit in the book. He talked about when food supplies ran low, they resorted to eating grass. Not going all the way with the story here. Of all the men that he visited, does Yamada overall make the most sense in his response to you? And if that's the case, was there also anyone else that was notable in that regard for you? Sense in terms of the way he tells the story seems like, ah, I'm getting the whole picture here that they didn't cannibalize as many of the indigenous people because they were too quick. And the things that he did becoming a tracker in order to stay alive, a guide, that does make sense for me. Well, I think Yamada is obviously the most up to the task of this confrontation, not physically maybe, but in every other way. So Okuzaki, he has to pull out all of his rhetorical stops here. He uses this logic trap of how we're all being punished He's cajoling Yamato with the idea that talking about it makes the sacrifice meaningful. His experience is invaluable. Okuzaki even offers up his own confession. Do you think any of this is legitimate when it's happening, or is it all just more clever interrogation techniques? I'm going to make the bold prediction that you're going to say both. No. <laughs> okay, for I once. think I'm not, because it seemed like the way that it came out of Yamada, it seemed like it was just time. And maybe he was just so tired because, again, I don't feel like he directs it directly to Okuzaki. So it's hard for me to think that finally Okuzaki said the one thing that's going to let the floodgates go. I think you're exactly right. I think the burden must be great for them to keep talking this way because I would not have given Okuzaki what he wanted if I had been able to keep from it. And it takes such a toll, this final confrontation, that Yamada is taken away in an ambulance as a result of this clash. So I think with every victim that he visits, and I do think they're his victims in a sense, 
this axiom that you either die a hero or else you live long enough to become the villain. Is that what's happening in microcosm over this two hour running time? I think so. And that you just finally reveal yourself because you can't help doing so. You can't cover up something on camera for so long. Yeah. Okuzaki is a righteous but completely appalling figure to me. And his overriding anger just demolishes every bit of goodwill that might be generated otherwise. He does make us confront the troubling truth, though, that violence produces results sometimes, whether we like it or not. In these instances, if you want answers, you have to accept that the method by which they will be gained is effective, but corrosive and compromising to your soul. And that's for all involved. And then deception, it produces results too. Like we said, if a police investigation employed those techniques, any case like this would be likely to be completely thrown out of court immediately. No, isn't it an actual law that's been upheld that they can lie in the course of an interrogation? They can, but imagine during that interrogation, the police bring people into the room that they've hired to pose as concerned relevant parties. That's completely absurd. That's on Colombo, I think. <laughs> or 1950s L.A., probably. That was something that happened. Eh, 1950s L.A., you're not going to go to all that trouble if you've got a phone book and a rubber hose. True. And then one nice little grace note, I think. Well, nice being subjective, but his wife being hit by the shoe, I think, is a really effective, accidental, but undeniable metaphor for the collateral damage that Okuzaki leaves in his wake in this relentless mad pursuit. By the way, I am not going to be the <laughs> wife in your story like that. When I paint that first sign... Bye-bye. Well, his claims of moral superiority here, they are completely dubious considering his past infractions, but I guess every cock to his own dunghill, basically. It's just that he's at a place in his timeline that he feels like he can climb up on his and crow about everybody else's. But let's say again, they were executioners and they were criminals. And speaking of interesting little tidbits as we're wrapping this up, that gut feeling that I mentioned earlier turns out to be even more valid because Okuzaki returns off screen and shoots Koshimizu's son. He simply doesn't see the irony of this campaign of violence that he has embarked upon. I feel like there's no other way this could have ended when I think about it. And didn't he tell Hara to begin with that he was contemplating murder and Hara had to think about it, whether he wanted to keep going with the project? Yeah, it was complete unmanageable chaos. And yet somehow, shout out to the editor, Jun Nabishima, because he took all of that instability and somehow fashioned it into a compelling, complete narrative. So have we covered why you chose this? Most of one big reason, yes. I chose it for two reasons, though. The one we've covered, I think, in great detail. Okuzaki is obviously a completely compelling figure. You cannot take your eyes off this guy, even though he is repellent. But two, the other big part of this that we haven't addressed as much, it's all of the questions that it raises about the documentary form. It's so hard to adequately synopsize and accurately describe this thing. Is it investigative journalism or personal crusade? What do you think is the aim or responsibility of the documentarians in this case? Are they helping to achieve some measure of justice, or are they just documenting a man in the grips of his obsession? Well, Hara is called out a couple of times for just standing by and watching and filming. And I think 
that non-intervention becomes its own side, and I'm not sure I'm on that side. He set out to make an action movie, and he did. So I think this was all for the drama, and it's a little bit scary, again, knowing that he knew of Okuzaki's murderous intent, but kept going. Troubling times, I'll say again. So not neutral. You wouldn't define it that way. I would not. Does this questionable approach then undermine the result for you? No, because I still feel like I got some idea of truth for each person. I think you're right there. I certainly, regardless of what the documentarian's intent was, I feel like I have a very clear idea of the urgency, the confrontational nature of everything, the dubious morality, his justifications and his hypocrisies. Let me ask you a flip side to a question that I asked you earlier. Do you think that the presence of the camera encourages Okuzaki to perform this violence when he might not have otherwise? I wonder about this whole violence is my forte thing that he talks about. How much of that came before and after the war? Because sometimes I wouldn't be surprised if he just went into that state of red mist and would have done everything the same way. But he also in part financed this production. So maybe he was waiting for the opportunity to beat out information that would be recorded. I think I'm in complete agreement with you in this case. I get the distinct feeling he would have done these things regardless. Just look at his prior record. He is a zealot. And then the last thing I really like about all of this, I like Hara's method as a meta-commentary on Okuzaki's method. Push forward. Don't let the established, accepted orthodoxy stand in the way of demolishing these social norms and kicking over rocks to expose the taboos. I think it doesn't stifle any of these questions. I think it opens them all up. So then that makes me feel like whatever the approach, the result is as it is. Well, it's truly fascinating, and I hope everybody goes out to watch it. You can find it on YouTube in its entirety right now. It says it has Spanish subtitles, but they're actually English subtitles. Second Run actually has also recently put out a great Blu-ray of it, so check it out. And while we're saying check it out, what about your recommendation this time? I chose another documentarian who cited this film as one of his favorites, and it's also about a troubling figure, and that is The Fog of War. 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara. It's from 2013 by Errol Morris and told in the first person by Robert McNamara, covering his observations of the nature of modern warfare, including his specific participation in World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Vietnam. I think you feel the same way about this as I I do. do. Yeah, I think this is one of the greatest documentaries ever made. And also one of the most head-splitting experiences I've had at the movies. Possibly the Philip Glass score contributed to that feeling of being underwater and gasping for breath as I'm listening to one revelation after another. I highly recommend this. I will never forget the moment when he talks about if things had gone a different way in one campaign that he would have been considered a war criminal. I also don't know that I'm eager to see it again, It doesn't seem like there would be a period of time in which the viewing of this wouldn't feel like a poignant experience. It's just timeless in essence. How about you? My recommendation this time is a connection through the producer of this film, and that's A Man Vanishes from 1967. When I saw Shohei Imamura's name in the credits as a producer here, it immediately brought me to this film. I'd already made the note earlier 
when I was jotting things down that I was getting similar feelings here from some of these interrogations and that this film showed a deference to Imamura, I think, if not an actual obligation. Okuzaki, he actually approached Imamura with this story first and Imamura declined and he recommended Hara instead. I mentioned this movie way back in our Ants in Your Pants of 2018 episode and I wanted to return to it here today to give it as a recommendation to specifically pair with this movie. It was directed by Imamura and it stars Yoshi Hayakawa and Shigeru Suyuguchi and it's ostensibly a documentary about an ordinary man who like many Japanese every year, disappears without a trace. As it unwinds, though, we realize that there is much more to both the story and this documentary framework. There are a couple of parallels, I think, that are fun here, like employing actors as part of the investigative process and then complex questions about the responsibility of the filmmaker in the documentary process. But the revelations here, they're much more meta and about the nature of viewing, and much less concerned about actually solving the case. I think it's brilliant, it's immense fun to watch, and it's really good for folks who enjoy having the rug pulled out from under them in an I've-never-quite-seen-anything-like-this-before kind of way. So once again, that's two great recommendations, The Fog of War and A Man Vanishes. And that brings us to the end of episode 139. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We want to say a special thanks once again to Matt and Travis at The Complete Podcast as they just put up the final installment of your conversation covering Kishlovsky's Three Colors trilogy, We always love being on with them to talk about anything. Thanks again, Matt and Travis, and Red was a great experience. So everybody check out all three, watch the movies, listen to the podcast, have fun. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore casts, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon at the Fatal Films Podcast, Matt Gasteyer, Mike Scharf, Spencer Seams at the We Cut Heads Podcast, Richard Sales, Jill Blake, and Derek Smith. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>